G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day dad, how are you going today? Good, thanks Rowan, and very happy to be talking about one of my favourite therapy approaches. Well, it is just a, a fascinating thing in therapy and in psychology and one that I also too am looking forward to getting into with you today. We've called today's episode Dealing with PTSD Using EMDR. So I don't know if it's a bit OTT to have so many acronyms in the title for today, but what are we going to be talking about for today's episode? Okay, well, as we described in the last episode about exposure-based therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder... Many people will suffer from a post-traumatic stress disorder at some stage in their lives, meaning that they have these recurrent, intrusive, distressing thoughts or memories or pictures come back about a past traumatic event. It might have been a car accident, it might have been a physical assault, it might have been a sexual assault, it might be war trauma, it might have been a natural disaster like severe bushfires, someone might have been diagnosed with a potentially fatal illness, a loved one might have died in traumatic circumstances there are a range of untoward events that we can face at some stage in life that about 10 percent of women about five percent of men across a lifetime will experience a post-traumatic stress disorder we talked about it a lot in our previous episode so we're not going to go over again in such detail what post-traumatic stress disorder involves and would encourage people to listen to the previous episode because when we come to EMDR or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing that's a technique that also like many other effective trauma-based techniques involves a kind of exposure in a way because it encourages people to relive a painful traumatic event so EMDR eye movement desensitization and reprocessing basically It's inviting people, here's the challenge, to think of, recall, the very worst thing that's ever happened in their life, probably the most distressing, the most fearful kind of thing that's happened. The person might have experienced a whole lot of helplessness and horror. So why do we do this when it will be painful? Well, the last exposure episode helps explain some of that, but because often the results are uplifting. If people have been stuck with intrusive thoughts and memories about painful experience. It brings up anxiety or hyperarousal symptoms, we call them, when the person's reminded of a past traumatic event. When people look to avoid thoughts or reminders of a situation or they maybe have less social contact, they're a bit more withdrawn, they have what we call avoidance symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, then it's important to do something to alleviate that condition. And EMDR... I think in the first instance is the most effective therapy technique, the most efficient and effective therapy technique that I've certainly used over several decades. Other colleagues in our practice have used to help address that condition. And it is something that on the surface seems a little bit weird, even the the term eye movement desensitisation and reprocessing. like It's a bit of a word salad in some ways that doesn't immediately make sense as soon as you see it, but... I suppose it is something that is quite scientifically validated as well. There is lots of research out there to talk about the benefits of EMDR, even if it's not the most intuitive thing on the surface. Yes, and I mentioned I've had a number of research-oriented colleagues in the past who didn't like the sound of this technique and were maybe a bit against it. They mentioned, well, I didn't 
like the idea of it. It just seemed too weird. I'll describe shortly how it works. But um, when they did the research and they looked at all sorts of international studies, a whole huge number of them, hundreds of studies, then basically it's very well documented and accepted by all sorts of scientific and trauma-related bodies, professional and research bodies, that EMDR is as effective as basically any other trauma-focused technique to help people. So there's cognitive behavioural therapies that involve exposure techniques that, well... They're as effective as well generally or seem to be as effective. There are a number of therapy techniques that can be seen to be very effective for trauma reactions, but none more so than EMDR. EMDR just as much as the others, even though it seems a more weird technique in the first instance. And just by way of maybe illustrating how much you and I believe in this. Like I remember having a dinner with one of my friends one time, Dad, and you were there as well, and we were having a bit of a chat and a good old catch-up, and we ended up speaking about the benefits of EMDR for about 30 minutes or so, just because of how much benefit both you and I recognise that it can give to people. But I think it's worth, maybe to start today's podcast, to go back to where you learnt about EMDR because I believe that it's not necessarily something that straight off the bat really resonated with you and you immediately saw the value in. Yes, well I heard of it basically in the very early 1990s and I was working then at the Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital with war veterans and I might have heard of it a little bit before that but that's when I mainly heard about it and look... I at first was quite against the sound of this weird technique because this eye movement idea, it involves a therapist sitting across from a client and basically waggling their fingers, moving their fingers back and forth in front of the client's face, about a metre in front of the client's face from side to side, so the client follows the clinician's moving fingers right and left, right and left across the midline kind of thing. And so that's where the eye movement comes in. And the eye movement is a particular type of bilateral stimulation. We've talked about bilateral stimulation before, and we actually have a demonstration of that on our website, a video which involves a kind of auditory kind of stimulus where people are listening to clicks through headphones in one ear and then the other, left and right, left and right. But where EMDR started with a particular type of bilateral stimulation, mainly eye movements, so again therapist sitting across from someone and then moving fingers back and forth and the person's meant to follow the therapist's fingers say for about say 30 seconds whilst holding a painful trauma memory in mind a trauma image in mind this might go back and forth maybe the a sweep of about 20 movements back and forth with a therapist's hand the person's moving their eyes back and forth right and left about 20 times this is over about say 20 or 30 seconds and then the client reports whatever comes to mind the therapist says okay keep that in mind or focus on that and the therapist waggles their fingers again about another 30 seconds 20 30 seconds then ask the person what's coming into your mind now what do you notice now the person reports that then focus on that the therapist waggles their fingers again now this sounds like a really weird technique how would waggling your fingers in front of someone whilst they're meant to think of this painful kind of experience. Well, we know that exposure can work, holding a painful experience in mind. But what's this finger-waggling kind of stuff? It, it really does sound like voodoo. So I heard about it and I thought, look, 
this seems pretty strange, this seems pretty weird, but there were too many war veterans who I heard say two things to me when they'd received this therapy from other psychologists in the hospital. One thing they said was it was just remarkable how vividly the images came to mind. So say images of Vietnam War experience. And the second thing they said, especially after they'd had a few sessions of EMDR, is they said how helped they'd felt by that technique, the intrusive memories, the pictures that they had in their mind no longer impacted them so much. They maybe didn't have nightmares so much. They maybe found their mood had improved a lot. Their anger was less. Their depression was less. I heard too many stories about these people benefiting from this. I thought, well, I'd better check this out because otherwise there might be a really helpful therapy approach out there with specific benefits for people with trauma reactions and significant trauma reactions. If I don't learn more about this myself, I'm at risk of withholding a therapy technique from people that they might benefit from. So I thought then I'd better go and check this out. Well, again, it is something that maybe seems a little bit strange in terms of it's almost like the way you described that there. It's a little bit like watching a tennis match. You're just sort of going back and forth with your eyes and then the traumatic memory changes. So there's something just so strange about that whole process that it's not as if it, it makes sense completely off the bat. But I understand you went from basically being a skeptic about EMDR and its value to training with the person who developed EMDR in the first place. So can you talk about how you came to learn EMDR from the person who developed it in the first place? Okay, now EMDR is a technique which has some quite specific training procedures and there's two levels of training. So the first level of training I did, I remember doing that in Adelaide with some people who'd come over from America who'd been trained by Francine Shapiro who developed the technique and one of the things that struck me is they were very savvy about dissociation and I was very interested in that and I saw them demonstrate their technique and I thought, look, actually, there really seems to be something in this with their demonstrations but I'll mention further again, when I did the second level of training with Francine Shapiro, it just really struck me the effectiveness of this particular technique. I was paired with somebody who he and I had not been trained in this technique before. We both had quite some expertise with trauma reactions generally. But in our exercise, our training exercise in pairs, we were meant to think of a traumatic situation we'd had in the past or at least a distressing situation we'd had in the past and then go through this exercise with each other. And I'm sitting there thinking, look, I'm meant to do this exercise but I haven't had anything traumatic happen in recent years and I thought, well, well, actually, wait a minute. A few years ago, well, I suppose I was hospitalised for depression. I thought, well, okay, I might use that. That should be good enough. Well, of course, that would be good enough. For some reason, I hadn't thought of that as maybe a traumatic event. It's not like a car accident or something like that, but I still had some you know, discomfort when I remembered back to that particular time. Anyway, well, we're doing this two-person exercise, and it's only going for about, say, five or ten minutes each. And I'm following this fellow's hands back and forth, his fingers back and forth, and I'm remembering the situation of having been in the psychiatric hospital. And the thought went through my mind, and I hadn't kind of realised I had this thought. This thought spontaneously pop up. Oh, I was damaged by that experience, being hospitalised with depression. But then virtually immediately, 
I noticed that I had this reaction following straight on from that, which is almost like, wait a minute, how laughable. As if I was damaged by that experience. What's this about being damaged by that experience? But I remember it's almost like the word came into my mind that's laughable. So I've gone from thinking, oh, look, I've had no trauma at all, to then remembering, oh, well, I could use that as an example for the purpose of our practice here. I can think of something, yeah, I suppose that was distressing at the time. Then realising I had this inner lingering thought I've been damaged by that, then virtually immediately thinking, that's laughable. Well, in the days afterwards, it actually hadn't struck me so much at the time. It's kind of like within the two or three days afterwards, I'm suddenly kind of noticing, like, wait a minute, I just don't really have any reaction so much about that time years ago. I know I'd recovered well from the time when I was in hospital. I recovered well from depression. I got back to work and all the rest of it. But I had this lingering sense that something was changed and I realised I'd really let go of that. I no longer had the feeling. I really did not have the feeling I was damaged in any way by what had happened before. Actually, there, there were some real benefits that had come from it. I'd learned a lot about dealing with depression. It helped my work with clients. I was very energised in my work. I was very grateful to be able to continue in my career. Actually, I had a lot of experiences that overlap with what we now call post-traumatic growth. But I also had this lingering feeling, having been damaged, it cleared it. I thought, my gosh, even the fact I wasn't expecting this to happen, I felt I was almost play-acting through this exercise. Uh, I heard other people's reports of their exercise and when my partner went through that and I'm acting as the therapist, I thought, yep, look, that seems worthwhile. In other words, I had the personal direct experience of how much difference that could make. Well, look, that was massively backed up by work with dozens of people with trauma reactions. I'd work with quite a number of war veterans, including those who had very severe difficulties. One classic example, a war veteran who he said about twice a month, for a couple of hours, he'd be laid up on his couch, absolutely tormented and tortured by trauma memories, a situation, this is a grim image, He'd seen a fellow soldier, a friend of his, loaded on the back of a helicopter. He'd been shot in the belly. And this person probably wasn't going to survive, but he could see all the blood around the person's midriff and all the rest of it. And the person's sitting there at the back of a helicopter being loaded into a helicopter. For two hours, a couple of times a month, he's plagued by this kind of image. Anyway... We do the EMDR, first session of EMDR. What happens? After a little while, helicopter lifts off the ground. He'd never seen in his images the helicopter lift off the ground before. The helicopter starts moving away. It starts getting smaller. He notices in a little while the helicopter becomes a speck. His distress level has gone down Virtually did nothing. He no longer has that image in mind. He's been played by. I see him eight months later. It was in a particular veterans program, veterans and their wives. We went off to the Yarra Valley and so he was one of the veterans invited to that weekend. He sees me, says, I want to tell you some follow-up about that EMDR we did you know, when I was in hospital. He said, I haven't had a problem with that image for the last eight months. This guy used to make his own home brew of alcohol 
he had the equivalent of at least a dozen bottles of wine or a dozen stubbies of wine a day. There's a notion that maybe we shouldn't be doing trauma therapy with people who drink that much. I thought he was so plagued by this distress we should use that example. It basically was one of the closest things I'd known to a cure from a particular kind of distressing memory in terms of at least flashbacks. This fellow still had quite some difficulties in other ways, but a lot had improved. That's just one of the starker early example, but there are examples upon examples of war veterans and others having dramatic change in their distress. Not all did, but the majority did, and often very substantial. And as their trauma memory settled and their trauma reaction settled, Typically, their depression would improve somewhat as well. Their anxiety would improve somewhat as well. We collected that data. Then the psychiatrist director of the hospital was able to present that to the people in Canberra. That actually helped lead to the first National Centre for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder being based in Heidelberg because we had the data showing how much people had responded to this inpatient program and a lot of the inpatient program was revolving around, apart from groups, there was individual therapy for trauma, typically using EMDR. There were three of us as EMDR therapists amassing data that was very convincing it made a difference. And I'll mention later some anecdotes of people that we've seen for other kind of problems. There have been people with industrial accidents, people who've had car accidents, people who are crime victims, people who've had all sorts of trauma and it's actually quite profound, the change that often happens when people have experienced this technique. Well, it is just so interesting, the degree to which someone goes through that transformative change. And like the way that you were describing that there, the way that I almost think about EMDR is it's almost like an artificial epiphany in terms of we can go through therapy for you know six to 12 months potentially, and then that could lead us to have this epiphany. But in whatever way EMDR is able to almost play with our perceptions and play with our mind's eye in a way and the way that we are stuck with situations that it's almost like we have psychological surgery. It's like literally someone can go into an EMDR session and come out a changed person, which as we spoke about before, you're just moving your eyes back and forth. It's like watching a tennis match in some ways, as I said, like you'd think it's this trivial activity that you're going through, but people really do experience so much change from it right to the degree where in our practice we'll have people on admin who literally recognize the change in clients after they've gone through EMDR. So is that your experience too in that obviously it was there in the example that you described but it just strikes me that that transformative change almost happens so quickly and it really does seem to be induced by just these simple eye movements and obviously all the extra stuff. But to a layperson like myself, it really just seems like you go in, you watch your imaginary tennis match and you come out with the problem just minuscule compared to how it was going into the session. Yes, and certainly that's more common when people are dealing with like a one-off trauma memory. It can be quite different if people have experienced very repeated childhood sexual abuse that also led them to feel mistrust of adults and a sense of abandonment and all sorts of other complications that can come up with that. Many people have also been raised in emotionally deprived environments where the trauma occurred in that context. So not trying to say that whenever people have trauma reactions, this will deal with it almost miraculously, but there are number of situations where I think like you said 
there is an epiphany and more so than using, dare I say, the standard exposure therapy techniques which we talked about in the last episode, where people hold a painful image in mind and we're looking at habituation. They hold that image in mind over and over again for a period of time. They tell a story over and over again and then the anxiety lessens because they're more used to it or they become desensitised to it in a certain way. But another example of the epiphany that you mentioned, a fellow very sadly had lost his brother in an industrial accident in the same factory where he worked, the same workplace. So he goes to work every day and this is a reminder of losing his brother in a horrific accident. I won't go into the details but it involved a piece of machinery that malfunctioned. Well anyway, there he is. He's been dealing also with depression, anxiety, as well as the post-traumatic stress symptoms, commonly with trauma. People also have anxiety and depressive feelings as well, maybe anger reactions, sometimes substance abuse. But this guy had been tormented by this image and memories of his brother's death, thoughts of his brother's death for quite some time. We're going through EMDR, and I believe this was in the first session. After a period of time, quite a number of sets of eye movements, things were unfolding. And at one point, he suddenly stops. And he looks up and he basically says, it would have been quick. What he meant is he realised that his brother's death would have been instantaneous. Dare I say, his brother would not have felt a thing. It became apparent from what happened from there that his torment was imagining the suffering for a lengthy period of time. I think it was more than a year afterwards that I saw him. But he'd been imagining the torment his brother had gone through, imagining this horrific demise of his brother, and then he realised it would not have been like that at all. Like you say, that was an epiphany. His distress absolutely dropped away. Anxiety, depressive symptoms improved immediately as well. He was a changed person because he was no longer plagued and tormented by that particular memory. And so then he was able to go on and, and think more favourable, you know, thoughts of his connection with his brother in different kind of ways and process through and progress through, dare I say, a, a more healthy grieving from there. Whereas when people have trauma memories combined with a traumatic loss, then it can be what we call traumatic grief and people get stuck with certain kind of memories. But that also was a kind of epiphany and I find that kind of epiphany happens a lot less with just straight exposure or someone telling a story again and again and again, you know, very consciously relating in a narrative what happened. No, things can happen unexpectedly with EMDR and that's, I think, part of its, well, extra curative process. And it seems that that element of maybe being unstuck in a way is something that does come up quite often with EMDR. Like the example that you described there, like it strikes me with what we spoke about last week, for example, with the nature of trauma memories. There could have been a lot metaphorically standing in that person's way from reaching that epiphany, but there's something about EMDR which allows them to get to that stage in a much quicker time, as you mentioned, than if it had just been regular exposure. And so what I wonder then is how can EMDR be of benefit 
over and above exposure, because we've touched on some of the things, but I think it is worth going into here because there is quite a lot of elements to which EMDR can even give a bit of a leg up, even compared to regular exposure therapy. Yes, and these things that I would notice, like, say, anecdotally, but I know many other people and certainly my colleagues at work, they comment on the same kind of things. And before I describe them, I also want to highlight that straight exposure therapy can be transformative, certainly for people with trauma memories and PTSD. In this way, when people have been plagued by a trauma memory and they fear it and they're very distressed by it, just the fact that the person experiences it as becoming lesser, less frequent, less intense, it, not, it, it doesn't, less frequent, less intense, it doesn't last as long, as happens with typical exposure-based therapy where, for example, a person tells a story again and again and again, like one client said to me in relation to EMDR, he said, it's like watching a scary movie. It's not as scary the second time around. Well, that's like straight exposure as well. It's not as scary the second or, or fourth or seventh time around. That's part of the idea of how exposure works. And so that can be transformative. Hey, I no longer need to fear these memories so much. The person's not trying to block it out of their mind so actively. They're less fearful. It can be in their mind. It's not quite so, dare I say, newsworthy. It doesn't feel such life and death kind of situation. It, it doesn't have the same survival mode reactions attached like it's these survival mechanisms. It's more an unpleasant and uncomfortable aftermath and then the fear can drop away and the memory becomes even less, even with normal exposure. So that's always worth having as a mainstay. And I'll also add, whenever anyone uses EMDR, including in our practice, we always make sure they have at least two therapy approaches or techniques they can use. It's not just a one-style approach because the same kind of therapy might not apply to everyone. We look to have at least two approaches and the others, the exposure techniques we talked about last week. But what do I find with EMDR compared to usual exposure? The memories are often more vivid. It's not uncommon to hear the person say, look, it just felt like it was yesterday or I felt I was right back there right at the time, like it was happening now or something like that more vivid so it brings the memory closer as someone says it's sort of more tangible more if you like if we think of it as being activated it just seems more real and current and so we know with trauma memories we need to activate them in a sense we need to heat them up before they can change if someone talks in a dry intellectual way about a painful experience, let alone a trauma memory, it's probably not going to change so much. You need to access your emotions associated with it. And so it's also more imagistic, like people's images can change. Like one person, he was involved in a fatal car accident as a driver. But then after a period of time, he's not kind of trying to do this, but later on he sees himself lying by a pool. His wife's there with him. So his image has shifted to this other, dare I say, safer, more neutral kind of situations, whereas before when he remembered the car accident, his mind would always be, in a sense, stuck with that frozen image. He'd not remember how afterwards other things had happened. And many people describe that aspect of images. They move on more towards an ending, which is another thing. It helps bring about more closure, I find. Often people find, oh, look, I was only thinking of the first part of the story. 
Like I can think of other examples as well where people remember the later part of a story, like not just the car accident, but when they got in the ambulance and then people visited them in hospital and then they remember returning home. So it helps complete the story and there's more of a narrative. That also can happen with exposure therapy when people remember the ending of a story because they're telling a fuller story. But with EMDR, this can come up unbidden. The person just finds their mind moves ahead to a later stage and a more uplifting stage when maybe they were back hugging their loved ones or receiving support or when they recovered fully from their physical injuries from an accident and then they're able to engage in sport again or something like that. You see the story fill out more. There are more symbolic images. For example, people can imagine brighter kind of images or happy scenes come up or being in a different setting, which is a more peaceful setting. Or someone can maybe have an image, someone recently described having an image of a temple. And so there's a peaceful stage they'd reached at processing their memories and also that person maybe had certain kind of spiritual beliefs and say imagining a temple they actually hadn't been in real life at a temple like this but just imagining that evoked certain kinds of feelings that I don't hear that so much in exposure based settings so often more positive memories come up unexpectedly so and it can seem spontaneous there's not this contrived aspect of the person trying to remember a narrative it seems to come up in a spontaneous way it's almost like Watching a movie is a therapist. It's like watching a movie. You don't know how it will unfold. Well, the person themselves often says how surprised they are of the kind of images that came up in their own mind. They're often spontaneous, but they do tend to lead to this positive situation with more closure. And as a result of all of those things, the vividness, how closer it is, the symbolic imagery, the positivity, the closure, I think all of those things help make it more transformative. Well, it is just an incredible thing to even have at our disposal for if we've gone through something that is, is quite dark and, and would be really harrowing. But we spoke about it a little bit earlier in terms of the, the mechanics of it, in terms of the therapist will use their fingers to almost go back and forth in front of our eyes. We follow along with our eyes. I wonder if you could give us a little bit more about, say, the mechanics of it, about how EMDR actually works, because it really is the sort of thing where, on the surface, it's you know, it's not as if there's some kind of scientific understanding that you can reference in this situation to go, oh, it's for this reason or that reason. It really just seems a little bit well, voodoo in some ways to the untrained eye like myself. So I wonder if you could give us a little bit more insight into how EMDR actually does work. Okay, now EMDR always involves a form of what we call bilateral stimulation, so stimulating one side of the brain and then the other. And the most common way of doing this is with eye movements. A common way of doing that is the therapist sitting opposite and moving their fingers back and forth in front of the person's face and the person follows their fingers. But it also could be the person seated before a light bar which has flashing lights that move right and left in front of them. They follow that with their eyes. But it doesn't just have to be eye movements. We can also have bilateral stimulation with a person holding out their hands, say a foot apart in front of them, maybe with their eyes closed, and the therapist taps their palms, say with their forefinger and middle finger, alternately tapping right, left, right, left, right, left, uh, tapping their palms alternately, and that's a different form of bilateral stimulation. And I'll mention I find that works about as well. There'd be at least 
20% of clients I see who, for whatever reason, they find it a bit distracting with their eyes open and doing the eye movements and being able to close their eyes and hold out their hands that way, that can work just as well. We can also use knee tapping, can tap the person's knee and also there can even be auditory stimulation so the person can have headphones on and there's a click in one ear and then the other. Now just being able to communicate with a therapist I find that the eye movements and the hand taps to me is more than enough. I don't think any other people I've needed to resort to something else other than basically those strategies that'll work for just about everybody but it can be any kind of bilateral stimulation. Now why does that make a difference? It's not fully understood But there seems to be increasing activity that bilateral stimulation leads to reduced activity in the limbic system. So the parts of the brain which relate to survival mechanisms that relate to the fight-flight arousal-based kind of mechanisms basically reduces the arousal level, this bilateral stimulation. Whether it's partly that we're getting this predictable stimulus going to our brain that kind of you know our brain scans for threat and danger whether just even the orderly nature of this information coming in says that there's something predictable happening therefore not so traumatic look we could speculate about that but there does seem to be increasing evidence that actually at a brain level not just by changing our thinking but changing our arousal level at the brain level we call that a bottom-up method than a top-down method If we think to ourselves, try and be calm, you know, I'll I'll just try and just relax my body, we're partly using a top-down method. Or if we think, I'll be okay, I'm going to, you know, just look to settle here and I'll be okay, we're using thoughts, our brain and thoughts, we call it a top-down method. Anything which, say, relaxes our body or settles our brain without having to think about it too much... I suppose we could use certain kinds of um, uh, you know, breathing techniques for that, but certainly bilateral stimulation seems to be more of a bottom-up method in some way in terms of the bilateral stimulation itself. But somehow it also seems to stimulate or encourage these different ways of thinking about things. That's not well understood. Sometimes people say it might relate in some ways to working memory. We've only got so much working memory and if we tax it, put more demands on it, we've got less space in our working memory. Maybe when people are focusing on some trauma memory and they're also engaging in some other kind of activity like following these eye movements back and forth, there's less available attention and working memory left to in a sense be overtaken by the emotional distress, the trauma reactions if you like maybe that has a settling effect because it's almost partly a kind of distraction aspect or taking up other space in our mind one other thing i'll mention is sometimes what i notice with emdr is it's hard for people to hold a trauma image in mind as well as to dissociate at the same time for example to feel as though they're not there to be almost outside their body looking on. There's something about it which is almost like a grounding technique itself. The person's sitting close to the therapist, the therapist is asking them to pay attention to their moving fingers. Sometimes I notice you're moving your fingers back and forth and the person's eyes stop. You say, follow my fingers, because it's as though the person's gone into a brief trance. You say, follow my fingers. The person then follows the fingers again and then all this emotion comes out straight afterwards. I think what might have partly happened then is it scrambles 
the person's maybe tendency to go into a trance or to dissociate. It keeps the person more present with the image, which means that they have to engage with the image more and the exposure that goes with that. So I think it has grounding aspects to it. It has probably arousal management aspects to it. It seems to have this settling of arousal to some extent. And you know, maybe there's almost an element of distraction away from the more distressing aspects of memory. Look, it's also building in. There's the relationship with the therapist who's there at the time who can be like a calming presence, like we talked about last week with exposure. Anything which involves a deliberate recalling of traumatic events and there's the therapist and the client together, that is a conversation between limbic systems. The therapist is engaging with the client and attuned. The therapist is well aware of the client's distress. The therapist can empathise with the client. And yet the therapist is managing their own arousal level, their own breathing, if you like, their own feelings within their own body to keep somewhat settled while still being in connection with the client, in relationship with the client, that will likely have a settling kind of effect. And the client will likely experience that as being a kind of holding and supportive environment. And so the quality of relationship and the trust that's there between the therapist and client is important for that. So just being in that close presence with each other might be another factor that's involved as well, whereas just say if the person's going through exposure, they're sitting across in a chair, I think it even in terms of our posture and where we're placed in relation to each other, the usual exposure is a slightly more detached process than the person being you know, sitting just across from the client, waving your fingers, tapping their hands, that kind of thing. So there are many different elements to it. But even though there's some research that suggests that if it's not bilateral stimulation, for example, if it's a flashing light the person looks at rather than something that moves side to side, there were some studies that that could work about as well. I thought they were very unconvincing studies. They're using, say, students for an exercise. It's not really a full-on traumatic event. It's something which might be bothersome for the student group but not that big a deal. I find often research as a clinician, I'll just mean, I think often it's very unconvincing. I want to see real-life research with people with very significant trauma reactions using these techniques as experienced clinicians would use them. If it doesn't have those elements to it, I think it's often a contrived little academic study. But I'd have to say myself, from my own direct experience over decades, from feedback from other colleagues, but especially the feedback from the clients, it's just quite remarkable how often people describe things as being somewhat transformative. So however it works, and it's not fully understood, I'm pretty confident, including from our research, that it works. Well, I suppose exactly what you're talking about there, some of the maybe confusion about how it works is born out of the research in terms of you potentially even see some contradictory studies at times and some things where you think you know even myself people have reached some some pretty quick conclusions in that situation but I suppose that you, you touched on our research there we have done a fair bit of research in EMDR and I suppose just by way of illustrating the transformative change that can happen just the degree to which EMDR seems to be a catalyst for that change do you want to speak about some of the research that we've done in our practice, which shows the degree to which EMDR can be transformative, even for people who have quite significant difficulties? 
Yes, and look, I'll mention this research too. We've presented this certainly at quite a number of Australian conferences with CBT and trauma conferences have presented in Japan at an international CBT conference and other international conferences. So basically, with our EMDR research, I'm particularly looking at, say, individuals that I've seen with EMDR and we're up to around about 100 individuals. Say, just recently, I was looking last week, we're up to 98 individuals where I've got that data on the system. And what can say from that research is people tend to go on average from a moderate level of intrusive and avoidant symptoms of PTSD to being around the border of the non-clinical and the mild range of PTSD. So it drops right down to a relatively mild level just within the clinical range on average. And again, that's with 98 people. Now the other thing is our research data includes people that we've seen, for example, through the work cover system or people where sometimes there were compensation factors involved. Now, it's heartening to see that those people as well, following industrial injuries or people seen through the TAC system where there might have been some compensation involved, they might have had a court case coming up and depending on their state of injuries, the the nature and level of their injuries, the severity of their injuries, they would get compensation accordingly. So that might, if you like, mitigate a little bit against some of the success of therapy where... We could say that the better the people go with therapy and the trauma therapy, then they might be looking at lesser compensation for the injuries down the track. It can be a complicating factor. Now, when we take out the data for people seen through, well, we could call them the compensation systems of work cover and TAC, then what we see is it's very clear cut that people with moderate intrusive and avoidant symptoms came down into the non-clinical range on average in terms of those PTSD symptoms, but also dramatic improvements and similar levels of improvements in anxiety and depression for the most part. So that was very heartening. The other thing is, when looked at the change that people went through across the EMDR phase of treatment, which is usually across a period of about two weeks, because it's painful, it can bring up very distressing memories and reactions just like exposure-based therapy generally, We looked to schedule, say, three sessions across two weeks, two in the first week, one in the second week, and then sometimes people need a fourth or even potentially a fifth EMDR session. I rarely go beyond three. The average is about two and a half. The median is about two and a half, but quite a number of times it'll be three. We look to contain it within a period of time. Well, if on average people are seen for, say, about 18 weeks overall for a course of therapy, and then... People might have been seen for the EMDR sessions across something like you know, two to three weeks of that time. Now what we've found from our research is people go through as much change across the EMDR sessions as they do for the rest of the therapy altogether. So that EMDR phase of treatment, those few sessions or those few weeks, it represents around about a sixth of the therapy process and yet you get at least around half the change in that phase. That shows how impactful that phase of therapy is. And I'll mention some anecdotes shortly which bear on this, but because every person that we see, we look to collect data on, use the impact of event scale, we have measures of anxiety and depression as well, tend to collect the PTSD symptom measures every single session, and you can see their trauma recovery curve. You see how often especially even after the first 
EMDR session or people are reading for it, how often people's avoidance symptoms come down. They're not trying to block it out of mind as much because they're not as afraid of it. It's now becoming more the devil they know and they're feeling some kind of encouragement because what we're looking for, as I've mentioned before, you look for the person's arousal level, their anxiety level or distress level to end up a session no more than half what it was at its peak. They've gone from an 8 to a 4 out of 10 in terms of their distress level or a 9 to a 3 or a, even a 6 to a 2. If people have half that level at least, it ends up as no more than half the level of distress, I say they've permanently undone some of the trauma. And we also have a measure of what we call self-efficacy, the person's belief in an encouraging statement like, I am recovering well, or I handled things the best way I could at the time, or I am strong. You know, something along those lines, or I am confident in my future. Just a positive kind of statement. If people then have a lot of confidence in that statement, say on a one to seven scale, they reach a like say a six or seven, out of seven on that scale, and many people do, that gives you the confidence as well. So we're looking for the person's distress levels to come down, for their avoidance to come down, and when people are more confident, they don't avoid as much, and when people are facing their memories more and processing them more, including helped by the therapy sessions and the technique itself, then their intrusions will come down. When people's intrusive distressing memories come down and thoughts then their anxiety will come down and their depression will tend to come down. So without even treating their depression directly, following the EMDR sessions, people typically have substantial improvement in their anxiety and depression. Well, how fascinating that there is, I suppose, that ability to almost override the trauma in a way, certainly in some situations when there is maybe some academic conjecture about the process that it works. I just find that so interesting. But speaking of interesting, Dad, some of the epiphanies, as we've spoken about, that can come out of EMDR, I know that you've recorded a couple there from some clients that have have mentioned some things to you which have just really well articulated some of the transformative change that can happen during EMDR. Do you want to share a couple of those with us? Okay, well, here are some direct quotes from a number of people. So first of all, someone after an industrial accident. And most people at the end of the EMDR ask them to give me feedback on how it's gone. But just in terms of the vividness, he just said, it did have a bit of impact. It made things a lot clearer. It made things come to me like straight away. So that's a common kind of reaction about the, in a sense, the vividness and how readily that things come up. Then someone describes, this is a person who's lost her mother through a traumatic bereavement, a traumatic loss. And she said, thinking of this situation of a mother, I found it quite distressing, but it seems to have been good. Now those images aren't distressing. When I think of it, I think of other images that counterbalance it. I think of it in a positive way, I guess. Like it's a very bizarre technique what feelings and emotions it brings up and how it can change the worst image to a positive image. It's mind-blowing. It almost trains your brain. If you do have a bad image, how to deal with it. So that's not quite the quality you tend to hear from someone if it's a straight exposure kind of approach. But here's someone else who lost her daughter in a car accident. And she says at the end of it, well, 
I know where I'm at. I like who I am. The sense of trauma can go away. I asked her, well, what helped with our therapy? She said, well, certainly the EMDR. Even though that was confronting, that was the turning point. That was the real turning point to me. I've been carrying this stuff so long. But I felt it enabled me. For the first time, I didn't see a snap picture, meaning a sudden picture. It made it alive again and I was able to put a different angle on it. I had those images for so long and they didn't change. Now I think of my deceased daughter. Now I think of my daughter smiling. Or someone else who witnessed a very grim fatality on the road. Someone struck by a car in front of him. He says at the end of the EMDR sessions, things happen for a reason. Before I put up with it for so long, when I had nothing to deal with it, like no way to deal with it, to be able to deal with it, it brings me so much happiness. It brings tears to my eyes. This is almost the first joyful tears. And this is just after talking about such a grim experience. Someone else now, someone who'd experienced childhood sexual abuse and repeated childhood sexual abuse. She said, I just don't let too many things get me down. I feel I've dealt with the abuse. I acknowledge that it happened. It's bad, but life goes on. I asked her about the EMDR directly. She said, I went into that not knowing anything about it, but I was surprised how vivid things were. For me, it was easy to say what happens next. Easier than I thought. When I thought about what happened and I thought how hard it would be to say out loud and then she described about how she could be present and described that and how much difference that had made to her. Someone else reflecting on a cyclone and he was like at risk of being killed but also like separated from his family for quite a period of time. He said, well, I'm all right. He said, I'm still a bit uptight but I don't remember dreams now and I'm much better prepared if it happened again. Someone else in relation to childhood sexual abuse. Okay, now after the fourth EMDR session, yep, not too badly, not feeling too badly, I can focus on a certain image and it's not so traumatic. EMDR itself is quite torturous, this person said, even then. So they're acknowledging it's challenging. We've got to remember that even if we've seen a lot of people helped by it, it's challenging, but it's not so traumatic. Someone else who'd experienced severe physical and emotional abuse in their childhood. I asked the person at the end of therapy, what has helped, you know, see me here. They say, the thing you did the other week, meaning the EMDR. I thought it was silly at the time, but it helped. It brought it all to the top, meaning it brought up all these memories. I didn't want that to happen, but now I can face them, the memories, so it doesn't matter. I'm not so scared of them and worried about it. It's like watching a scary movie twice. It's not so scary the second time. Someone else with childhood sexual abuse, I'm amazed in the last two to four months how it's gone without having the emotions and the background noise in my brain. It's amazing how much room there is now for conscious thought. That's what happens when people process trauma memories well. Rather than taking up that space in their attention which affects their concentration, things like that, they're more freed up in other ways. Someone else with childhood sexual abuse. They acknowledged how helpful the therapy was. Life is smoothing out. The resilient feeling has really grown. With my partner, I'm really good. I'm reconnecting. 
after having said after the second EMDR session, they said, after you stopped, I felt completely different. Something significant changed in me. Something deep down that is lasting. Someone else describes, in the past I could not see light at the end of the tunnel. No one has said I'll get better except you. And then they mentioned how much they felt that they'd recovered from that point. Just a couple of others. Someone, childhood sexual abuse again. The more you face up to memories, the more you get familiar with it. The less impact it'll have on your life. And finally, someone who witnessed her husband who was killed in an accident. I turned a corner after the first EMDR session. I feel calm. That image has not come back. The image is blurry. It's gone from my immediate view. It's there, but it's not scary. I can't believe that something like that has gone in such a short time. And I could even add something. Somebody I saw just yesterday, this person said to me, I've had these memories for 40 years, and they're basically unchanged. And now it's just sort of quite different. I don't have that distress now of those memories anymore, which had really transformed and actually unfolded into quite positive images in different ways. Now, when you hear that as a therapist again and again and again, and we're talking about a number of people there, their quotes when they'd had repeated childhood sexual abuse, that has a compelling impact on you. Oh, well, absolutely, certainly. I imagine it would. And even listening to that, you almost get a little bit emotional just at the the power of something like this because so many of the examples that you described there had such a beautiful poignancy to them. It's not as if some of those people you're describing had, had forgotten the traumatic event. It's like they've found a way to actually integrate it into their way of being going forward and the event can still be a part of them but it seems that they've almost reconciled an element of it and they're not as distressed, they're not as stuck, they're not as traumatised and as we describe it, it's this sort of thing, you know, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily make the most intuitive sense and I'm almost left with this feeling of, you know, obviously, you know, Dad, we've had conversations on the podcast, off air, like I'm someone I consider myself, you know, a rational person in some ways. Like I'm very interested in science and there's many elements of, of academia that I really enjoy but what really strikes me talking about this is that just because there's maybe some academic conjecture about something, about how a particular process works, it doesn't mean it's not valid. Like all of the things that you've described there are such valid transformations to the point where I think if you're a writer for a TV show and you were talking about, you know, a character who's gone through transformative growth and you're, you know, writing a script where the character tries to synthesize that trauma into, you know, some form of growth, like those examples that you use there are as good as anything that I could think of a Hollywood writer to come up with. So it just strikes me that, you know, there's no way of getting around the fact that this is something that really does seem to work, seem to work well and allow people to get to this stage with their recovery where it's not this huge hurdle that they keep bumping up against again and again and again. They are able to find a way to get past that and almost synthesise things in a way for themselves where they haven't forgot what happened. It's not as if it's less important to them, the event that they went through and even maybe the connections that they had with the deceased person who's gone now, but they're just able to think about it in a way that allows them to get through some of the, the muck, get through some of the really harshness of those events that we can go through and the reactions that we can have to something like that. And you just think, 
what an absolutely brilliant thing in the first place. I almost sit here just a little bit confused because I don't understand how it does work, but just have a real faith that it does. And it just really seems to offer so many people such benefit that I really think is quite beautiful in a way because, you know, how else would people be able to come to those just just quite, yeah, amazing and in some ways miraculous epiphanies? Yes, well, clients and clinicians alike, you know, people will go on their own experience and hopefully some of that kind of experience has come across today in terms of those stories, in terms of people's quotes when I mentioned some of the research that we've done and, and summarising that. But what strikes me, actually, you're mentioning some things there. When people process trauma memories well, then those experiences do tend to be more integrated in the person's life. Rather than just something that the person maybe feels just sort of sticks apart from other aspects of their life and it just doesn't fit in and can't make sense of it, the person has a more integrated understanding. Dare I say the person has a more holistic kind of understanding. They can make a connection between their past, their present and look to the future with hope. The person's thoughts and their feelings and their meaning and understanding of life is in a sense more settled and integrated. The person's more accepting and at peace with themselves. So even very sad or tragic events even that happened don't undermine the person's sense of life being worthwhile and being able to influence how things go without having that full control, whilst accepting that we don't have full control in our lives of things that happen and bad luck can happen. But also there's something uplifting that comes through from people processing their trauma memories, including regaining their well-being. People often do have a greater sense of identity in their life. They do have a greater sense often of gratitude for what's good in their life. They often do have a greater sense of meaning, things that in the positive psychology field that would be called post-traumatic growth. But one thing I'd have to say, and I've got a slight beef with this at times in the positive psychology field, as though that field invented the notion of post-traumatic growth. No, from time immemorial, from the shamans onwards, people will understand that they're positive things that come through challenging situations. And so when the shamans used to talk about trauma memories, if we're talking about several thousand years ago, they would talk about a couple of different things. They would talk about people being impacted by evil spirits. What they're referring to is the intrusions, distressing intrusions associated with imagine all the traumatic events in life there would have been in prehistoric times. And then they talked of soul loss. What they mean is the kind of numbing and the loss of meaning. But the shamanic traditions had their uplifting stories of people coming through their version of the hero's journey and would have had their rituals that represented that. No, from the dawn of time, people have understood that when people come through challenging situations and also often with the benefit of others around them, their social supports and all the rest of it, there could be something uplifting and transcending about that. We didn't need positive psychology to coin the term post-traumatic growth for therapists to recognise that probably around half of our clients, if not more, with trauma reactions, when they reflected on their traumatic experience, once they'd sort of got beyond it and defused those memories, about at least half our clients would in a sense of not said they so much regretted that experience. If they could press a rewind button in their life and take that out of their life, I reckon about half the time they would not have done that because they recognised that their trauma experience is part of what who's shaped them as a person. 
including the extra strength that they recognise in themselves, the resilience from having come through things. So positive psychology was helpful in highlighting the term post-traumatic growth to pay extra attention to that, but that's been around as long as there's been trauma and people being reflective and certainly any kind of trauma therapies. And again, the features of it, it's more integrated with our lives. We can accept it further. We can look to the future with hope and maybe, again, some sense of acceptance with who we are and how we've handled things through our lives and hopefully, again, a positive sense of connection with other people. They're the hallmarks of people coming through trauma well, whether it be with therapy or without therapy. And the other final thing I'll say about EMDR is like any other effective therapies, it builds in a whole lot of other aspects. It's not just the eye movements. It's the trust between the therapist and the client that's built. It's all based on a relationship. Then it's the psychoeducation. And our last podcast on exposure, and this one is looking to help people have an understanding of what these therapies are about and why we invite people to do what they don't want to do, go back to these feared and fearsome kind of memories. It involves, if you like, certain kinds of anxiety management or arousal management techniques to be able to help manage through distressing experience. And it involves ways of stepping back from our circumstances and taking a different perspective on it. If that can be done and processed with someone else at the time, maybe a therapist with the support of others as well, that can be something which is even more helpful and integrative in different ways. So EMDR builds in all of those other aspects. It's not just the finger waving. It's not even just the exposure. It has all of those elements to it as well. Well, it strikes me as maybe being one of those things. It's a bit like a duck, you know. We're seeing the surface where it just looks, you know, quite simple and calm and then there's everything going on underneath that almost makes up the the meat and potatoes of it, for lack of a better term. But I know this is a metaphor that you've used a lot in the past, but it just strikes me that EMDR can almost help the puzzle pieces fall into place a little bit more. And I remember one thing that, you know, you said to me when I was a bit younger and really struggling in some ways, you said... You know, sometimes things happen where, you know, your worldview almost needs to come apart to come together in a new way. And and even last week, the way that we spoke about the nature of trauma memories, like it just strikes me that with trauma and, and traumatic memories, there's something about them that almost obliterates your worldview. And you have this real sense of your worldview being obliterated in a way in terms of you lose all confidence in, in you know, what what worldview stood there before but it just strikes me that you know with you know obviously MDR with exposure but this idea of post-traumatic growth the way that you are able to reassemble your worldview after something like that happens it's not as if you just forget that you've gone through that situation and it's almost like you just kind of tack up a bit of a paper mache worldview and oh it seems all right in this situation like Part of the issue with trauma is that you really do need to synthesise and integrate things in a way that resonates with you. And I think that is just one thing that I'd like to, to finish with talking about some of this sort of stuff, Dad, is, is just how possible that is. And you know, it's not to trivialise how difficult that can be, particularly if people have had prolonged issues. But in saying that, with these therapy techniques, exposure, EMDR, it just strikes me that they are going to maybe nudge the scales in our favour or they are going to help us to assemble a worldview going forward that does synthesise all of the, the rubbish and the muck that we've gone through in our past 
and allows us to get to a, a stage where at the very least it's not as distressing and then we can move on with our lives in, in at least some way. It doesn't mean that we're going to forget what happens to us, but we are able to get that sense of momentum moving forward. Yes, you describe that well. And what comes across from the way you're saying that it's some kind of uplifting feeling. And this morning I talked with a colleague who just recently completed a series of EMDR sessions with someone who had one of the most distressing and horrendous experiences that I would have heard of at many different levels. And yet there was this uplifting feeling when I talked to my colleague and heard her describe how this person had gone from strength to strength in different ways. And so the expression we often use here as therapists is when you see something work very well, put it in your trust bank. And that's part of the purpose of this podcast, to look to convey to people who are considering EMDR, not just within our own practice, but anywhere, people considering that, just pick up on why we feel so encouraged about this technique from how much has gone in our trust bank. And I will say, I think it's disappointing in many ways in Australia that for a lengthy period of time, especially many academically oriented psychologists were very slow to pick up on the benefits of EMDR. I think it looked a little bit too weird for them. I think it was hard for people to explain in a rational way. And like another interest I have, like synchronicity and appreciating meaningful experience in life and thinking coincidences sometimes are more than just coincidences, that's sometimes just too much with people of a very academic and intellectual mind to grasp or accept well unfortunately I think that sometimes means that real wisdom can be missed and so I think unfortunately many people probably missed out on having the opportunity of having EMDR as an available technique to them because it maybe wasn't as supported as it could have been at academic settings fortunately a great many Clinicians across Australia and around the world have picked up on this kind of technique. It's got decades of research behind it. And I go back to that original thing. I would have felt that I would have maybe deprived clients of something really worthwhile had I not looked into this. And I encourage other clinicians and people graduating from university, for example, people working in the psychology field or the trauma field, at least look to learn something about EMDR. Expose yourself to it as an alternative. As one of the famous researchers, a British researcher, Yule described at one stage, to be recognised as a trauma clinic in Britain, this is about 20 years ago, they had to offer at least two therapy approaches. One was a CBT-based exposure approach, kind of like what we talked about in the previous episode, and they also had to offer EMDR. If they didn't, they couldn't be recognised as a proper trauma clinic. And I think that was good judgement on their part in Britain that way. So there's very solid credentials for this kind of technique and hopefully our descriptions today put some of the flesh on the bones of the data of why we think it's very helpful. Well, absolutely. And I suppose just a, a little tidbit in terms of our practice, like I believe all of the psychologists we have here quite readily and regularly use EMDR. And you think what a, a diverse bunch of people they are with different interests and different specialties and all that sort of stuff. But all of them, once exposed, pardon the pun, to EMDR, find that just as such a, a suitable tool and such a beneficial tool to use. 
Well, certainly very many do. And what I could say is every psychologist who joins our practice, one of the first things that we arrange is for people to undertake EMDR training if they haven't already done it. Now, we wouldn't do that and we wouldn't fund that if we didn't have a belief that it could really often add something extra. And I find it very satisfying to work in a practice where along with many colleagues, we've been able to offer that to very many people and the vast majority of those people have greatly benefited. Well, certainly. And, well, Dad, thanks for chatting with me about all this, both today and, and for the last podcast too. It's, oh, it, I must admit, I thought it was going to be a slightly darker topic in some ways, and obviously there was elements of it that, that were a little bit dark to get into, but I hope everyone out there is, is feeling as uplifted as I am talking about some of this sort of stuff because having seen some of the benefits and some of just the marked transformations that people can go through even despite some quite distressing situations they've been through in the past. It really is just a an uplifting technique that really offers so many people so much benefit. So thank you for chatting with me about all this. Of course, we'll put all of the resources for today's episode. We've got a, a few previous podcast episodes which are going to relate to today's episode and we'll put those up. Uh, you can access it at psychspiels.com.au. Uh, if you're listening on the internet, feel free to give us a subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And, Dad, we, we have a, a slightly new thing this week as well that we'll let people know about too. In the, we've got a new resources list. So, Dad, you've been hard at work making all the resources and I just basically put them all together. But there, there really is quite an extensive list of resources that we do have. And of course they're on our website, but we've set up another special website for that too at chrismackyresources.com.au. And so that might be out there for maybe people who want to have a bit of a look through some of those resources and we'll put all of the links for today's episode, including that link there up at psychspills.com.au. But Dad, thanks once again for chatting with me about all this today. I look forward to the next one. And great, Ronan. Thank you so much for all the work you've done over a long period of time to put all those resources together in a more accessible way. And we hope, again, not just our clients, not just even people across Australia, we appreciate our listeners from elsewhere as well. And we hope that you find those resources helpful.